Fruits, you are dismissed. Hey, we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and Luke was really written as a apologetic. It was a defense of the faith. It was written for the very express purpose of helping the reader to be more secure, to be more absolute, to be more assured of the things that they believe. Thus far in this Gospel, we've seen Luke make it very clear that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's not a savior. He is the savior of the world. And while I know it's not politically correct, the reality is Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. There is this exclusivity to the gospel. And what we're going to see in the passage that we unpack today is that Jesus himself is reinforcing this exclusivity of the gospel, that it's really all about Jesus and nothing else. When Jesus launches his public ministry, he, he does so in such a way that he, he goes to this, this synagogue in Nazareth and he, and he reads from the scrolls. He reads from Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus' proclamation is good news to the poor. It's freedom for the captives. Jesus' very mission statement is to come to bring physical and spiritual healing to us, to set us free from oppression. Throughout the gospel, Jesus is quoted as saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. What he means by that is, I have come to make the kingdom of God within your reach. To put the kingdom of God at arm's reach, to make it more accessible to you. The Gospel of Luke is really just this detailed account of Jesus living out that mission statement from Isaiah 61. Jesus' arrival, this, this thing that he's doing, it's, it's something very new. It's something very different. He is really changing everything. And what we're seeing is that the religious leaders are coming from all over Israel, coming from Jerusalem into the region of Galilee, and they're coming to observe Jesus' ministry. They're coming to sit in judgment of Jesus, to say, what is this thing that Jesus is preaching? What is this new thing that Jesus is doing? So far, they've criticized Jesus for forgiving sins, for hanging out with sinful people, and we're going to see in our passage today that, that they're going to continue to criticize what Jesus is up to. Open your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 5. I'm going to read verse, start at verse 33 and read through the end of the chapter. I'm going to take a minute for you to uh, look for that, but I want to remind you to check in on social media. If you use social media, Twitter, Facebook, whatever it is, let people know that you're here at Grace. Let people know that you are learning about Jesus. The challenge for us when we read the Gospels, and we see this over-the-top behavior of the, the religious leaders, so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the tendency for us is to say something like, well, how could they possibly miss what's going on? How could they possibly be so blind to this movement of God? And the challenge that I have for you, the challenge that I have for all of us is as you read the Gospels, the better question for you to ask is, how am I just like the religious leaders? How do I respond in such a way that I miss the very movement of God around me? 
What Jesus is bringing represented a lot of change, and the truth is we are all resistant to change. It is just part of our human nature. So we ask ourselves, how are we like the religious leaders? As I get ready to read this, I just want to remind you what's going on. Jesus has called this tax collector by the name of Levi, who becomes Matthew, and he says, hey, follow me, and it says he left everything and he followed him, and then he has a dinner party. Right? This was two weeks ago I taught through this. And what I want you to hold on to is kind of what goes on. So, so they are there at the dinner party. They're in the courtyard. They're eating dinner. But all of the people from the village, or a lot of them, have come to observe this dinner. And the way it would traditionally go is they would have a meal. And at the end of the meal, they would have a lively discussion about politics or religion or ethics. It would be this heady sort of conversation. They would even say it was a, it was a sort of symposium. It was an intentional conversation that came at the end of the meal, but we don't have anything like this, where we would have people over to our house, and then everybody who's not part of the meal would just come and, and watch it, but it's important for you to have that in your mind, because this is part of the reason why the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, were so offended. Jesus has invited people to sit at the table to be part of this conversation about religion or politics or ethics, and the truth of the matter is they would have been saying to themselves, what do those people have to contribute to such a heady conversation? I should be the one at the table. After all, I'm the one who's trained in these topics. But in their case, they're sort of uh, left to the outside to stand and watch the meal go on. But that's the setting. I just want you to have that in your mind, partly because we're going to see lots of meals in the book of Luke. And this is the setting for most of those meals. And it just makes the, the understanding of what's going on richer. It's a teaching moment for Jesus. So it's a big crowd observing a meal with an intentional conversation or a symposium, if you will, at the end of the meal. So verse 33, and it says, and they said to him, that's probably somebody from the crowd. We don't really know who. They said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. No one puts new wine into old wineskin. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put in fresh wineskin. No one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I'm just thinking about between the services, how much is packed into these few verses that we could preach a few series on what's in here. Your word is so rich and so powerful. Thank you for that. Pray that in these next few minutes that you would just guide my tongue. I pray that anything that I say of, that's of you would just land in fertile soil and that it would grow and bear fruit and anything that's not of you would just fall away. Lord, the prayer this week is the same as the prayer last week and the week prior to that is that we would interact with the living God and that we would leave different than we came. Thank you so much for Norflet and just the skill and this, the talent that he brings in leading worship. And just what a gift it was to sit under that leadership this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the problem. Jesus isn't acting the way he's expected to. 
Jesus isn't doing what a religious leader of the first century is supposed to do. As a matter of fact, if you were a first century leader, a leader of the church, then you were going to fast two days a week. And your disciples were going to fast two days a week. It was just a part of the religious system at this time. Jesus is sort of bucking the system, and he's drawn the attention of those who have come to watch him and to judge who he is. He's not doing what he's expected to do. The problem is, so, so, the, so the religious leaders are looking at him, and they're asking the question, why do you do this? Why are you not fasting and everybody else is? You know, in the scriptures, a lot of times when the religious leaders were asking a question, they would ask the question kind of to prove that they knew something. Or sometimes they were asking a question to actually trick Jesus. I actually think this is a very legitimate question for them to ask. It's a good question. Other times it's not. Have you ever been at a, a conference or maybe in a classroom and there's that person that always asks questions but they're not really asking a question? They're just making sure that you know that they know something, right? If you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, we have a counseling center across the parking lot. We can help you out with that. But, the, but that's not what's going on. I think they're asking a legitimate question, right? So they're, they're asking a question, why do your disciples not fast when, when everybody else fasts. In order to understand the, the idea of fasting, we have, we have to kind of go back to the Old Testament and say, well, why did people fast in the first place? And throughout the Old Testament, when we see fasting, it's always a response to something of need. It's always in response to maybe even some impending danger, or it's a response to deep mourning. And it was a way of crying out to God and saying to God, I need you to show up. I need you to be very present in this moment. I need you to save me from what looks like it could be pending doom. So that's kind of the context of whenever fasting would come along. So there's this sense of need. There's this sense of, of mourning that comes with fasting. And I just talked about it a little bit, but fasting was also just a religious act. It was a show of, of piety, right? And so the religious leaders don't understand and say, why? What's the difference here? Look at the text. Jesus says, can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? Let's unpack that for a minute. If fasting is associated with mourning or if it's associated with oppression or this desperate need for God to show up, would it make any sense to fast during a wedding celebration? No way, man. A wedding is for celebration. I, I had a great chance to be up north. We went to Petoskey and did a wedding last weekend, and it was a beautiful wedding. But one thing is obvious, that wasn't the time for us. We had to even think about, like, what kind of conversations you want. We're not going to talk about the things that are burdening us in the middle of a wedding. A wedding is a time for celebration. So you choose different times. There is a time for those kind of conversations, but it's not at a wedding. A wedding is a time to celebrate, not a time to mourn, is what Jesus is saying. But then he says something that would have rocked their worlds. It would have blown their minds. Because over and over in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as the wife, and God is referred to as the groom. This, is, this imagery is so pervasive in Scripture that I'm sure that the people who were standing around that table listening to this meal would have gone there in their minds. Jesus is telling them, I am the bridegroom of Israel. Whoa. Think about it for a minute. All of these Israelites, all of these Jews standing around a table listening to this dialogue, and Jesus says, I 
am the bridegroom that you've been reading about, that you've been hearing about in all of the prophecies. This is an incredibly bold and powerful statement. I am the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom, and he is there. He is physically present. He's right there. He's in their midst. This is no time to mourn. This is a time to celebrate. And then Jesus says these words in verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Jesus knows what's in store for him. He knows about the cross. He knows that he will die this awful death on the cross. He knows that he will bury, but he also knows he will rise again in three days, and he knows that he will ascend to the right hand of the Father. And so he's saying to them, look, the time will come when I am not physically right here, right with you, when my actual body presence is not here. And in those days, look what it says. It says, they will fast. Jesus has an expectation that you and I, that we as followers of him, fast. And why do we fast? We fast for more of the presence of Jesus in our lives. We fast as a way of experiencing more of God in our day-to-day lives. The fact is, we are in this theological, between these eras, theologically speaking. Jesus came, he walked the earth, he died, he was buried, resurrected, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we also know from the scriptures that Jesus is coming back. We are between these two eras. And in between these two eras, God gives us the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, so that we can experience God and know God. If you know God, it's only because the Spirit of God has revealed himself to you through the Spirit. So we're living between these two eras. And and as we live between these two eras, we, we live to experience more and more of the presence of God in our lives. Jesus knows, as he's speaking at this dinner, dinner party, that it's a new day. He knows that he's ushering in a new covenant with his people. He knows that everything is about to change. The way they worship is about to change. The way they approach God is about to change. Everything is going to change. And he also knows human nature is to resist change. So he tells them a parable. Look at the passage. It says, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. You have an old pair of denim jeans, and they have a hole in it. Nowadays, we just leave the hole in it, which is kind of weird. But in the old days, you would actually patch the hole. Well, if you were going to patch the hole, you wouldn't go get a brand new pair of jeans, cut out the patch, and put it on there. Why? Because when you put the jeans in the wash, that new patch would shrink, and it would pull away from the patch, and it would make the the tear even worse than it was before. Jesus is saying, look, you cannot mix anything else with the gospel that I'm preaching. You cannot mix anything else. It's all about this new covenant that I'm making you. It's Jesus and nothing else. And we have a tendency to want to add things to the gospel. If we go back and we look at the history of the church, right out of the chute, almost all of the letters of Paul are writing to the churches and warning them to be careful of the Judaizers, the Jews who are trying to say, yeah, it's Jesus, but it's still the law. 
It's Jesus and circumcision. It's Jesus and, it's Jesus and. And you know what? Through the history of the church, that's always been the case. It's been Jesus and, and Jesus saying, no, you cannot mix this with anything. It's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, and nothing but Jesus. And what he is saying is when you try to add something to it, it won't work and it makes it worse. It ruins what's going on. He continues with this parable about change, and he says in verse 37, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst, and the skins will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskin. If you think about a wineskin, you probably think about something that looks like this. If you went to a public university in Michigan, you probably owned something that looked like this. Yep, just saying. But this is not what Jesus is referring to. In the first century, wine was made in two ways. It was either made in these big clay jars like we see at the wedding feast in Canaan. You remember when Jesus turned the water into wine and all the water was in those clay pots? That was a similar way to one of the ways that wine was made. But most commonly, wine was made in the skins of an entire animal, the skin of a goat. And it would look something more like this. And here's the deal with these skins. You could only use them once. So they would take the goat, and that's actually the neck that you can see. I know that's a little, I showed it to Megan. She goes, that's kind of gruesome, kind of. But this is what they were talking about. So when you're reading through the Old Testament and you see wineskin or you see a skin of wine, this is what they're referring to. And it often was a very generous gift given to a king or a visitor or a way of making sacrifice. Because imagine all the work that went into that. You had to create the hide. You had to clean out the hair. You had to get it ready. You had to put all that wine into it. So what would happen is they would press the grapes, right? And then they would, they would strain it and they'd get all the seeds and the skins out. So they just have pure juice. Then they would pour it into this wine skin and they would tie it off. And then as the wine began to ferment, it would create carbon monoxide because that's what the fermenting process does. And the skin would, would literally grow like a balloon. It would stretch to capacity, and the wine would permeate the leather, and the leather would lose its elasticity, and, the, and, it, would, and it would fill up, and there would be this wine in there. Now, some of you are, have been taught that it wasn't really wine in the old days, and I just want to tell you that the, the, the way you make wine like this, they say that the wine will be about 12% alcohol content if, content if you make wine. Now, look... I don't know if you know anything about wine, but that's some good wine, okay? It really is wine, all right? So we see this wine skin, right? It's, it's probably different than what you, what you had in mind. And Jesus says, look, new wine requires new wine skin. As a matter of fact, once they used them for wine, at that point, they would usually use them to carry water because water wasn't going to expand. But if you put new wine in there, it's already been stretched to capacity. Now the gases expand and it explodes. It just, you can't mix the two. New wine requires new wineskin. New wine in the old wineskin just makes a mess. The last statement Jesus makes, look at verse 39. He's still teaching them about change. He's still teaching them how they need to respond to change. And he said, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. This is the equivalent of settling. It's, it's saying to yourself, what I have is fine. Why do I need to change? What we've always done is just fine. It's okay. It's, it's all good. I saw a bumper sticker once that said, the King James Version was good enough for Jesus, so it's good enough for me. 
right? Not to mention that it was 1,600 years before it was even put out. But the whole point is somebody's saying to themselves, why do I need to change? The King James is good enough. We don't need to change anything. We are resistant to change. It's in our human nature. But what Jesus is actually saying here is, look, what I have for you is better than what was. And the interesting thing is when you think about wine, old wine is better. Aged wine is more expensive. It, it's, it's actually better unless you happen to be at a wedding in Canaan. Do you remember the story? Jesus turns the water into wine and the host says, wow, you saved the best for last. That wasn't old wine. But Jesus is saying, look, whatever I have for you is better than what you have. But sometimes we just want to stay where we are. Sometimes we're just ready to settle. This is good enough. Look, this is not good enough. God has something more for us as a church. God has something more for us as individuals. But as long as we are satisfied with what we have, as long as we say, this is good, let's just stay here. Let's just be where we are and not move forward. Then we're going to miss out on what God has. Some of you are fans of Jim Collins, right? He wrote a book, Good to Great. And what does he say? Good is the enemy of great. And just so you know, he stole it from Jesus. Because that's what he's saying. Look, the good is fine. The good is okay. But Jesus says, what I have for you is way better. By the way, I don't know if Jim Collins actually stole it from Jesus. So you don't need to send him a letter. My pastor said you stole this. All right. If we go back and, and, we, and we look at this from a, a stepping back from it, the question we got to ask ourselves, so what is the new wine? What is the new wine? And, and what is the new wineskin? And why does this even matter to us? It's a great story, but what is it? If you go back and you look at the prophecies of the Old Testament, we see that when Jesus, the Messiah, comes, that God is going to establish a new covenant with his people. I just want to make sure you know that it's not like God made a mistake with the first covenant. He didn't start something and then say, oh, that's not going to work. We need to change my mind. I need to do something different. No, the, the old covenant was there for the very purpose of pointing forward to the coming of Jesus. It was there to help us understand our desperate need for Jesus. But he said, when Messiah comes, I will establish a new covenant for you. So the old covenant was given through Moses. The new covenant is given through Jesus. The old covenant was based on the law. The new covenant is based on grace. In the old covenant, there was a, a priestly system. They were the descendants of Aaron and they were the priests. In the new covenant, it's the priesthood of all believers. In the old covenant, the presence of God resided in a temple. In a new covenant, the presence of God resides in you. It's a major difference. It is a huge shifting in the way God relates to his people. It is making the kingdom of God more accessible within arm's reach for all of us. The writer of Hebrews talks about this new covenant in Hebrews 8. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant, which means a new promise. It's more than a promise, but that's another way to look at it. A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the days when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. He's talking about the covenant he made with Moses. Verse 10, he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, Listen to the intimacy of these words. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Jesus came to fulfill the law of Moses. He came as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
Now, I want you to be careful. This does not mean that sin does no longer exist. It doesn't even mean that the Ten Commandments don't matter. We can still look at the Old Testament and see examples of right and wrong. We can still use it as a guide to some of the things, but we're not bound to the law in the way we were. But sin is still sin, and God is still calling us to live holy before him. What he is saying is, I have created a different way to deal with the sin that's in your life. And this new way is is more intimate. It's more powerful. Jesus came to make the kingdom of God known more clearly and to make it more accessible. He came to bring the kingdom of God within arm's reach. As we come to know Jesus, as we come to know the Father more and more, we experience his very presence in our life. We experience the love of the Father more and more. If you weren't here last week, Ken did a great job uh, with the message. He talked about this fountain, and he talked about the love of the Father for the Son. He said it's kind of like a two-tiered fountain, and the love of God is like the water, and it comes out of the top fountain, and as it flows over, it flows over into the second tier of the fountain, which is the Son. But as it fills up, it pours out, and where does it go? It goes into the third tier of the fountain, which is you and I. There is this picture of of God's presence pouring out more and more in our lives. The new covenant, the, the, the new wine is the new covenant. It's the presence of God in our lives. And the new wineskin is you. You are the one who carries the presence of God. Those young men and women who are going as, as counselors to camp with the kids and kids across America, they are the wineskin. They are carrying the presence of God on that bus with those kids. When you walk out of here, you are taking the presence of God with you. It is a powerful picture of this, this new order that God has put in place. This week I found myself thinking about this image a lot. When we desire more of God, when we are willing to lay aside our distractions, when we are willing to lay aside the things that get in the way, and we truly seek God and we say, God, I want more of your presence in my life, when we're willing to fast, when we're willing to pray, when we're willing to spend time reflecting on God's words, really when we put the six essentials into practice and we come and we gather and we connect with one another, we do all those things so that we can experience more and more and more of the presence of God. And I want to be full to the point where I want to explode. Sometimes when I think I have the presence of God, but I'm like this floppy water balloon, and I want to be filled to capacity, ready to explode with the presence of God. I want you to desire that same sort of filling. Here's what I can tell you. God desires to do something new and exciting in your life. No doubt about it. God desires to do something new and exciting in your life. The question is, are you going to embrace what's new or are you going to hang on to what's old? Are you going to keep holding on to the past or are you going to embrace the new wine? When we are filled to capacity with the presence of God, it affects everything in our lives. It affects our marriage. When we're filled to the capacity of God, when when God's presence is pouring over and everything, it changes every relationship we have. It changes our workplace. It changes everything. It changes our community. The question is, are you desiring to be filled to the presence of God where you are going to explode 
with the new wine. As I was putting this talk together, I just kept thinking about a song that we used to do here a long time ago, More Power, More of You in My Life. It's just a prayer to God. And so I'm going to ask Norflet to come up, and he's going to lead us in that song. And I just want to encourage you to make it a prayer. And you can pray it where you're sitting. If you want to come down here and pray, if some of the prayer team wants to come down, that's great. Wherever you're comfortable, but, but pray. Pray this song into your life. The truth of the matter is, God desires to fill us more and more and more with his very presence. Let me pray for you. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to take hold of the kingdom of God in a more powerful way. I pray that you would not allow us to be complacent with where we are. That we would never say, well, this is good. Why do we need to press forward? Why do we need to chase after you? Why do we need more of you in our lives? This is all good. Lord, help us not to be complacent. Lord, I pray that the desperate desire of our heart would be more of you. I know that you smile when your people are pursuing more of you. Lord, help us to be the church you've called us to be on this corner. Help us to be wineskins exploding with the presence of God. In Jesus' name, amen.